Um, ab- abuaja. No, no. Say oo. Oo. Oo-boo-a-ja. Okay, all right. So like, like boa, like the snake, ja, like god, ja. So ubuaja. Ubuaja. Yeah. Okay, ubuaja. There you go. Ubuaja. Yeah. Do you say more ubuaja or ubuaja? Ubuaja. Is that your emphasis? My emphasis is completely different. (laughs) (laughs) What do you say? In Nigeria, it's ubuaja, but nobody here is going to be able to say that. So we just go with the silent G and just go ubuaja. (laughs) And people aren't tripping. (laughs) You've just basically given up on us. No, it's like learning clicks. Like there's some languages I can't speak because I, I can never make those intonations. So it's the same thing. So right, right. Ubuaja oh, so for, for, for this hemisphere. <laughs> From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. 82% of advertising professionals are white, according to 2019 statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor. The lack of diversity in advertising has long been discussed and analyzed. It's what gave birth to the Brand Lab in Minneapolis, a nonprofit on a mission to change the face and voice of the marketing industry, in large part by exposing students of color to internships and job opportunities. But in 2020, a year of racial reckoning, the call to action is becoming more urgent. Rosemary Ubuaja didn't need an uprising to know that things need to change. She co-founded Nika Creative on a mission to create an inclusive agency and build inclusive brand strategy for clients. She's an accidental entrepreneur whose optimism and purpose is not only educational, it's transformational. And it all starts with her childhood. Yeah, so my childhood is split. I was born in England, um, in South London. And then uh, my parents moved, we all moved back um, to Nigeria um, um, for my high school years. So I went to high school in Nigeria, and then I moved to America at 21. Well, what what was high school like in Nigeria? And were you do you remember were you happy when your family moved you from London to Nigeria, or did you want to stay in London? Oh, I'm I'm that naive child. Like I just went with the flow. My older brothers were more upset about the move. You know, they had. Um, more significant relationship. I just went where my my mom was. <laughs> so I, I I don't I don't recall being upset about the move. The move was a bit of a surprise for us kids, and I, probably even my mom. We went to Nigeria to visit, and my dad said, "That's it. We're staying." Wow. So it wasn't really a planned out move. So my older brothers had more of an issue with it than I did. I was just like, well, this is new. Okay, this is different. <laughs> How old were you? I was eight. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And and what did your father do in Nigeria when you moved back? Um, my father was a civil engineer. So he went and he got work with the government and did um, policy and housing and things like that. My mother, when we left England, she was she had taken her um, education um, certification. So when she went um, was in Nigeria, she she went that path and ended up becoming principal of a number of schools. Hmm. But yeah, they 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 settled in. I mean, I think there was a feeling for my dad most likely that he he wanted to be back home. He didn't think that he belonged in England. Um, he doesn't. He didn't think any of us belonged anywhere but Nigeria. So that was how he got us there. And how much do you think that influenced your childhood? And how different was your childhood in Nigeria versus London? And how much do you think that influenced your, you know, just kind of worldview? 
Oh, completely. Um, I, almost in any given scenario, I keep going back to, I'm no stranger to hard work. Because <laughs> when we got to Nigeria, very shortly, I was put in boarding school. So um, regardless of how we grew up in England, which was I never saw the head of a chicken, right? You bought your chicken from a supermarket. And then you're thrown right into it where, you know, it's just wild animals. And you know, it's just different. We don't go to the supermarket. We go to an open street market. Um, there are different languages being spoken. Um, oh, my goodness. The heat. The heat. Now, that was the thing. It's hot. We're in the tropics. Um, so it was a, it was a shock on those levels. And then the norm was to go to boarding school. You didn't baby your kids. You sent them off to get strong. So I'm, I was the tiniest person in my boarding school because I went in a couple years earlier because I passed the exams and I was so frail and tiny. So yeah, I really had to... <laughs> like <laughs> literally tiny. <laughs> I was. I was really... I mean, everyone felt sorry for me. And there's a term we use in my... Syria, derogatory in a way, ajebata, it's, I, it's the person who eats butter. So that means you're soft. You're not, ajebako is the person who eats plank, so they're harder. So I was in the soft category. So, yeah, so well, I was made, uh, you know, ridiculed a lot. In, well, I would, but, I would definitely be in that butter category with you. I'm gonna... Oh, yeah. Oh, pretty much. <laughs> It's a good place to be. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. I know that, that your parents felt very strongly that they wanted you to study the sciences. They wanted you mm-hmm. to, to get that education and to go into what did they want you to be a doctor, an engineer? Yeah, mostly my dad, an engineer. My mom's more on the creative side, um, do what makes you happy kind of feel. But my dad, he was a civil engineer and he felt we would all, you know, I should just be an engineer. So, I, and again, I was that child. I went along. I was not the disobedient kid. And I mean, people keep saying, well, ask your, your parents about it. They would, they would agree. I just went along with it. <laughs> I didn't have any strong convictions either way. But I really knew I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to do art. I had a cousin who drew all the time. And I really wanted to be a part of that. So I did all my sciences in school. I got good grades, so I was on the science track. But I just had that nagging thing that I wanted to be creative. I really hmm. did. So what did you do? You you moved. You left Nigeria. Well, well, before I left Nigeria, um, yeah. Once I graduated high school, I spent about a year, you know, doing the exams, um, the standardized tests, and things like that to get into college. Oh, we call, yeah, it was college there too. Yeah, <laughs> university. And we, um, and I, I mix up my terminology from the different continents I've been on. I'm like, what do we call it again? Um, but we, um, so I did that, but I had to take fine art exams in another high, um, high school in Nigeria. So I wanted, to, I didn't want to leave the country without having any, any diploma to show that I did art at all. So I ended up taking fine arts in the final exam. And then shortly after that, I was in England to enroll in college for engineering. Okay. And mm-hmm. did were you able to, like, do art on the side? Or did you just, at that, at that point, did you think, okay, I'm going to just do what my parents want me to do. I'm a good girl. Um, no, actually. When I moved to England, um, there was a huge sense of, well, it was really, it was really clear that I was making my own decision. So when I moved, my mom, her, her mantra was, "Whatever you do from this point onward is your decision, and you bear all the consequences, good, bad, or indifferent. That it's, it's you. You're, it was, it was really you're out. You're out now. You're on your own. Oh boy. And I was 17. <laughs> so at that point, um, I just knew it was up to me at that point to do what I wanted. So I didn't. There wasn't a sense of having to obey anyone. It was just whatever I did, I would bear the consequences of it. Hmm. So you got that engineering so, degree. No, I didn't. You didn't? I got to, <laughs> no, Yeah, for my reasons, no, I didn't. I got to England 
and while I was applying and doing what I needed to do that summer for college, that's when I discovered graphic design. I had no idea that um, graphic design was a profession. Hmm. <laughs> but once I, I got to England and I was in awe of all the visual communication, the underground, the streets, I mean, the wealth of it. And don't forget the contrast for me. I spent many years in a boarding school in a in a remote part of Nigeria in a desert. Um, and our nearest neighbors were the local, the villagers. Mm-hmm. We did not watch television. I think we had TV once a month. We entertained ourselves with plays and, and dance routines. So I was not exposed to visual communication or even television for many, many years. So going to London, getting out of the airport was just this huge shock, huge wave of of information. And I found all of it so fascinating and just so stimulating that I had never been stimulated like that. For all these years, I was in boarding school. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in an underground station looking at all the posters and just saying, I want to be a part of that. Hmm. Like someone creates that. I want to be a part of that. And that was it for me. So I started, you know, talking to people. I want to go. I want, and it, I want to do that. And they say, oh, you have to go to art school. I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so then I reached out to the art school. They said, sure, just bring your portfolio. And I went, what? I don't know what that is. I don't have a portfolio. It was a crash course for me that summer. I was in my studio apartment and I um, I went out there and I, I just started doing artwork. I just started drawing and painting and, and I still have my very first portfolio. <laughs> Were you good? I mean, did, did you have just kind of a natural proclivity for art, for design? I think they thought I was so good because it was so different. It was exotic. I was drawing things from my own experience, which was not the experience of any other student applying. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if technically I was good, but I was expressing what I knew. So it was really exotic. (laughs) Um, And I got into art school. Uh, So it was a summer of my carpet was stained in paint. I bought an airbrush, which is terrible with this um, compressor, and I'm airbrushing in this closed-up studio apartment. Like, I couldn't even imagine doing that today, inhaling all those inks, but that's what I did. (laughs) I just worked. I had no television. I just created art and Hmm. put my portfolio together and got into art school. So that was it. And, yeah, I didn't didn't go to engineering school, no. So no regrets (laughs) there, huh? No, no. No, not at all. So, <laughs> once you graduated, did did you have a did you have a path in mind? Did you know what you wanted mm-hmm. to do work wise? Oh yeah, I wanted to work in advertising. Mm-hmm. But the 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 route to that then, I don't know if it is that way now. Was you had to go through design. Hmm. So I did fine arts, and then I I ended up studying um, graphic design with an emphasis on typography. Um, and all of us wanted to work at Sashi and Sashi. <laughs> I think of all all the students, all of us, who said, what What do you hope to do in your future? I want to be in, you know, I want to work at Sashi and Sashi, as if it was the only agency that existed. But we all aspired for that. So tell us, uh, so what's Sashi and Sashi? Oh, it's an ad agency. It's one of the top ad agencies in, actually, globally, maybe now, but in, in England, that was the top ad agency everybody wanted to work out of. Did you get the job? Oh, no, I never applied. It was just an aspiration. (laughs) It's good to have goals. It was an aspiration. Oh, yeah. We just, you know, you have to go through a little interview process before you get into the graphic design school. I think all of us, uh, that was what we said. That's that's, that's all we said, you know. Right. So, yeah, so I went to design school. I went to the um, London College of uh, um, Printing, they called it, which is now the Royal College of Printing, um, and did typography there. And and then what did you do once you graduated? Um, I worked for a very 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 short stint in a um, a copy place doing graphic design. 
similar to um, the FedEx Kinkos. So you go in and, you know, someone mocks up your business card. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I worked there. It was called, um, I think it was, it was called Quick Print, I think, mm-hmm. in England. I hated it. I absolutely hated people telling me what font to use. <laughs> when I'm the one who studied typography, what colors to use on their posters, I absolutely hated it. <laughs> um, so it was really more of a print shop and I was to typeset things and I would gravel and complain. It just didn't seem to match the years put into learning um, about design and the real world. So no, I I didn't I didn't like that at all. So I, you... I knew I couldn't be the the draft person. Right. I just knew that. No, I wanted to. I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be on the receiving end of people criticizing my creativity. Okay. So you, you yeah. they they needed to see your creative genius. Mm-hmm. So so it seems like more an an agency where you could kind of flex that creativity muscle. You know, the eye opener was that I realized I'm probably better off being a fine artist and not a graphic designer. Hmm. So after all that, I I I just felt if I did do art, it would be for my own personal expression. And not commercially, mm-hmm. but I really still love the industry, and I love being around people who can do that and who can um, create to a client's need, and also still be happy with themselves. I really, <laughs> I wanted to still be in. So I knew I, I was still in love with the ad- industry of advertising. Um, so at that time, I was also going through a stage of real personal growth. I was coming upon being 21, and um, it was time that I shared my my go-with-the-flow naivety, naivete <laughs> and made some real decisions about my life. That was really that point. Um, so I had a friend who recommended some self-help books for me, but I didn't ask him. He just felt that I needed it, so I was <laughs> upset. I was upset about that. Um but eventually, when I cracked it open, there was just a lot of growth that I needed to do, um, and and I needed to make a decision about my career. Um, it also that period also coincided with when I discovered America. Um, I met these musicians, <laughs> as it goes. I lived up the street from a music studio, so I met these musicians who were producing an artist, um, an American artist from Minnesota. Who? And Alexander O'Neill. Okay. I don't know if you know it. He did fake. He's from Minnesota. Should I? Oh, no. Um, Should I know him? You you would know the songs. Okay. You would know the songs. You have to look it up. We'll look it up. But he was an international hit. Mm-hmm. Um, R&B, kind of poppy. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Can you hum a few <laughs> bars for us? Oh, no, my singing is <laughs> terrible. I my I would never be forgiven for that. But um, but you're a fake is one of the songs. You, okay. you when you hear it, you go, oh, I remember that. Worker, you know, right? Something. Um, but we um, so so I came to Minnesota three times in that summer to record music videos. You're kidding. You I just, know, it was such a go with the flow. Were you I dating like, this sure. musician, or you just struck up? Oh, a... no, 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 no. It was, no, I wasn't. Um, I was much older, Alexander O'Neill. Okay. The, it was, the, the studio was up the road from my place. Uh-huh. Um, so first it was like a groupy thing to go to the studio and just see how they mix music. And then it became, oh, we need, you know, some... You, you want to come to America? We could do the music videos. So it was it was a fun summer, I must admit. <laughs> Sounds like then it. I um yeah then I did discover um, U of M. So between so say oh you could move down here. I'm like what am I going to do? I but I I'm, I need to figure out what I'm doing with myself. But then the University of Minnesota had a program in advertising, mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen that at any of the colleges in England. It was graphic design or some other part of design. And I just thought, yeah, I want to be on the business side of advertising. So I enrolled and I got in. So 
I moved down January 3rd and January 6th. I was in class <laughs> and I'm still here. From London to Minnesota. Yeah. Did did yeah. you did you ever think you would stay? That that was what year? Do you recall? 97. Okay. And, yeah, 97. And Minnesota was your entree to the US. First first place you'd visited or had yeah. you traveled in the US before? No. This is my first place I visited. I never that was my first yeah, I hadn't been to any other state. So I moved down. when you started that program, was it like that was the big aha, like this is what I'm meant to be doing, the the more the business side of advertising? Well, the, I, the aha was I, I really love academics. I loved um, understanding. I loved answering the question why. So why I left the science route and went to art school, I still longed for some of that academia. So I really loved when I was at the U in the CLA program, getting back into it. So I took classes in psychology and speech speech writing. And, you know, I got back to academia, which I I had missed um, when I was doing all those years in art school. So, no, I really, I, I loved it. And I just felt it was a perfect, and I did. I still did enough art classes to declare a minor again. But I still, I did all the other things. I went back to do some math and some ast- um, astronomy and just things that I and physics. So I took some of those classes and blended them in, and I just felt it was perfect. This industry had always been perfect for me to bring those two things together, um, the strategy and the creative together. So I. I'm one of those people that I've always done what I do. I just, I found it early on. But mm-hmm. yeah, U of M was, was great to get that um, four-year academics to add to my creative diplomas that I had. So where did you go from there? What was the first job? Oh, so while I was at the U, I, I worked in, um, besides the temp job that I did just to survive, <laughs> I eventually got a job in Yellow Pages Advertising. Because hmm. I really wanted to get into the industry as soon as I could. So while I was a student, and I came with a whole bunch of privilege, I'll just tell you that right now. I got jobs easily because I had a very, very, very strong British accent. People always wanted to put me on the phone. So even as a student, <laughs> I know it's so biased, but I, I got good jobs. Americans love I, a British accent. What can we say? Yeah, I, I got the job. So I, I would... Um, I worked in a lot of help desk and reception work when I was, you know, as I got here. Then eventually I was able to get a job in Yellow Pages Advertising at a company called TMP Worldwide. We probably need to tell some of our younger listeners what the Yellow Pages are. They probably don't even know anymore, right? I know. (laughs) This was before Google. This was before search engines. We looked things up in a book (laughs) where they were alphabetically (laughs) listed and you would page through to find Mm -hmm. a business. So uh, yeah, from there, you, you went to, to some bigger companies and agencies. Yeah, so I finished out of, actually, I graduated while still working at the Yellow Pages um, company. But during that year, I started looking for an internship in a bigger agency. Um, so yeah, I, I got my first internship at an agency called Kirker which was great. They, they they got tired of me showing up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kept that. showing up with my portfolio. I, but not a portfolio, really. I, I did make a packet, and I just kept... They kept telling me they had no internships. I said, I'll work for free. <laughs> they kept saying, we can't... It's not legal to have you work for free. And then at some point, they go, oh, okay, you can work. Persistence pays off. So, so my first um, bigger agency, I worked on... Um, um, Johnsonville Sausage and Buca di Peppo. Mm. And it was amazing. I had a blast. Um, so that, they, they, you know, they accommodated me for three months. And then I, I had, I, at that point, I had, a, I had a daughter and I wanted to be closer to home. So I now started looking for work in another agency in the St. Paul area. I think we only had two agencies in St. Paul. So I knocked on their doors repeatedly till one of the agencies just said, okay, we'll give you a job. I just kept going back and going back. So that's how I um, I got that job and spent a few years there. 
And then you ended um, up with, with Yamamoto, Cole McVoy, yep, Target, I, yep, yep. a lot of that's big how names. That happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it happened. It just I so I, I was in that one agency. I started with I started um serving with the Advertising Federation of Minnesota. I started the diversity um committee there and ran that. So there was some visibility from that because I, I published a, a column in the format magazine. So I you know, <laughs> this is all dating me, but we don't have format magazine anymore. Um so there was visibility there. So I really got recruited from that the network of being in the industry for all my other jobs. So, so you're you're moving up the ranks. You're 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 really building your reputation. You have a portfolio now. You're 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 working. What makes you think I'm going to leave this path? I'm going to get off this path, and I'm going to start my own agency. Yeah, there was nothing really. <laughs> I, I never ever thought I would start an agency. It's not something that I. I I plotted out or dreamed to to do at all. Um, when I left the agency world and took my first and my only today corporate job, which was at Target, my friends that I left in the agency world, and this was during the recession, they, you know, they there was just a whole. So one of the agencies we worked in, one of the latter ones had gone through a major change. It had been bought out by a holding company. So the culture started changing. So I was hearing my 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 colleagues from previous agencies really not be very happy about the culture, the work culture, um, not feel that they were able to bring their best creatively to work. Um, so we kept on having discussions, meeting for dim sum, talking about, you know, maybe we should build something. Maybe we could create something. So there was a whole group of us that... We, we fantasized about building the perfect agency. <laughs> and what was and your then, idea? What, what, would, what was that vision of the perfect agency? I think it was an agency where creatives felt they were free to, to truly create and not one that was um, guided by the clock, so to speak, um, or, or that was too rigid. Um, where they couldn't do their best work. I mean, I had colleagues saying in the past two years, I can't add anything I'm proud of to my portfolio. Hmm. That was a big part of it. And then I think also um, where people felt they were respected. Um, and that's why even my company now, our, our value is respect and creativity. You can't have You can't have creativity without respect. And I think that, so those are the, the, the things I think for me, it was the whole notion where people say, bring your whole self to work, mm-hmm. but they don't really mean it. Because once you show your whole self, everyone will be like freaks out. Like, OK, not that self. What, what do you mean? <laughs> what, what, what part did you feel like they didn't want to see or know? So for me, I was a single mother at the time, juggling, handling a toddler. Mm-hmm. And there were just in the larger agencies, there was this expectation of being hip, being available all the time. You know, they built these agencies to accommodate absolutely everything that a young person, a young hip mm. person would want. You could skateboard in there. You got showers. <laughs> They've got um, alcohol on tap. Like, you don't even leave. But I have to leave. I've got to go pick up my daughter from daycare. I've got, you know, I've just got other things to do. And that was not welcomed. Hmm. So you find you're, you're, the, you're the brunt of the secret whispers, or here she goes again, or she didn't come with us on that trip. She didn't travel with us to Florida. And it just felt not an inclusive. It wasn't inclusive at all. It was really hard, and it felt really judgmental for me as a, as a single parent. So, um, so it was more the, the parent aspect. Was there, a, was there a race aspect as well? Mm-hmm. Yes, there was. So when I worked in um, one of the in Yamamoto mosques, I didn't notice any difference <laughs> race-wise because there was a time there that there were 13 nationalities and 30 languages working. Amazing. I think that must have been the most diverse company in Minnesota, hmm. period. Um, and what happened there was we understood that you had to... You had to be patient for the for the magic to really emerge. 
because we we as people we tend to finish other people's sentences we think we know what's coming but when when you're in a group of people from different parts of the world we don't really know what's coming next mm. so you you wait for it and it was also the president as an account manager there i had to also train my clients to wait for it so if there's a presentation by someone who english is not their first language you can see the client getting agitated like okay hurry up okay you know but just wait for it just take the time and then the beauty just emerges because we communicate differently um we process things differently so that was the beautiful thing about that agency and the work that was produced was banan just for class work then i went from there somewhere else and it was very very different it wasn't as not just wasn't it visibly diverse but there was no leeway for difference there was no leeway for there could be another way or another idea that you may not have thought of you were, you were almost expected to go along with the status quo even in the creative side of things so yeah mm-hmm. so yeah it it affected it <laughs> And of course, you probably had no idea what you just loved the this industry, you loved design. Did you have any sense before moving to the States what what the industry would be like? You're not the first person to note that, you know, there is not a lot of diversity. It's a, it's something that's been talked about for, for many years in the world of advertising. We, we might not have come as far since Mad Men as we'd like to think. What, what was that? Was that discouraging? Was it surprising? What were your thoughts? I had no idea. Like I, I tell people today, if I didn't start on this path to this career before I moved here, I would never be in it. Hmm. I would never be in it because I, I would never have seen anyone in it um, that looked like me or represented me. I would never have developed the passion that I did. It's the passion that pu- pulled me through. Um, and the first time that I got a negative experience in the workplace, I would quit. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go back. Right. But because I was I've got this drive and this, you know, in me to keep on going. That's why I'm in it. I I mentor young students um, now and I I feel what they feel where they're in a creative space and they're invisible, especially students, um, young people of color. Their ideas are not acknowledged. They're not, um, you know, and it happens almost in every field, not just in the creative field, but. As a young people of color are often overlooked in the workplace, mm-hmm. and I because I've had enough of my mentees tell me, "Oh, I brought up an idea, and people actually like they didn't hear it, but this other guy brought up the same idea, and oh wow, everyone paid attention to him." That's discouraging for a creative person. It's demoralizing. At some point you start to shut that down. Mm-hmm. And at some point, people leave the industry, so we don't retain them. So yeah. your thought was, I'm not going to leave the industry. I'm not going to get discouraged. I'm going to start my own thing and do it differently. Yeah, that came from first, um, look, trying to find where we fit as a group with all these discussions. We realized we're not really fitting anywhere. Why don't we just start it? Um, so that was on the back burner. But let's not forget, I was working at Target. And I really enjoyed what they paid me. <laughs> and I had a, I, I, yes, I, I made, I made good money, and I was able to have some semblance of work-life balance as I raised my daughter. Mm-hmm. So I was in no hurry to leave. Um, but eventually, they, they kicked me out. They had a layoff during the recession, uh. so I was out of Target on a, um, I was out of Target on a Thursday, and. My some of my other um, peers, they were also laid off from their agency that week on the Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So they were laid off on Tuesday. They called me. I go, oh wow, sorry to hear that. I look like you guys have to go start something now. <sighs> and then on Thursday, I got my pink slip, <sighs> and I go, oh, it looks like we have to go start something now. And then on Friday that week, we had the very first meeting. In fact, that was um, October nineteenth. That was yesterday. 
11 years ago. Wow. So really... We had our very first meeting. We have Mm -hmm. to credit Target with giving you the kick into entrepreneurship. Yes. (laughs) Oh, if they did not, I I was very comfortable. (laughs) Yes, they did. (laughs) So given that it was a a, a down economy, something we're experiencing once again, and... You know, everything you were seeing and we know that creative um, agencies, that's often the first thing that people cut back on, that businesses cut back on when times are tough. What gave you the confidence that you could start your own agency, that you could start Nika Creative and it would be successful? Um, I would say there wasn't a whole lot of confidence, but there was no other choice. Hmm. Um, There was no other choice. Nobody was hiring people in our field. We also knew that we wanted to build something um, to serve as an example. And I, we knew we couldn't get a job, but we could get a project. Mm. So don't, don't give, basically the pitch was, we're not here, I'm, I'm not here looking for a job. I just want to help you with one project. That was the pitch. So, um, and, and it's it works. been built project by project. Yeah. Um, we kept our overhead really low. In fact, the very first year, bless his heart, um, he's late now. Um, Farhan Mohammed gave us an office space in Edina, a conference room and three offices. Hmm. He um, and I just—that's just a—that was a sign. So that that Friday, he was our first meeting where he wanted to expand his business into web development. And we had that meeting, and the three of us, we looked at ourselves and we go, "So what do we do now? Where do we meet next?" Mm-hmm. And he goes. Just meet here. Come next door. I have this empty space. And that was it. That was it. It was just, it was, it was a sign that we had to be doing this. Are your founder, mm-hmm. your co-founder still with you now? Um, one of my co-founders is, Alan Say is still with me, um, and one is not. Okay. And how big is, is mm-hmm. the staff at Nika? Um, right at this moment where uh, I say seven people that I see every day, even with Zoom, I see them every day. Um, but we do expand as needed. We have at some point expanded up to 30 people. It all depends on the projects we are working on at the time. Do you have a sweet spot? Obviously, you came into this knowing what you thought was was the kind of culture you wanted to, to build. <laughs> what does the agency specialize in? Oh, yeah. You know, strategic brand development. It's strategic brand development. So it brings together my whole, you know, left brain, right brain. So we start all our clients from a strategic angle. What are we trying to accomplish? Um, and how can we best get them there? So that that's definitely, I think, there's three main areas, brand strategy, brand implementation, and brand culture, um, which is what a lot of brand agencies don't do. Um, but the, the the thing that really, really sets us apart is that we pull inclusion through everything that we do. What does that look like? So, what does that mean? Well, first, it's the intent. We built an agency to be an inclusive agency. So the first step of it is how can we be an inclusive agency? What gives us the the right or the confidence to think we're the ones that can do it? So it affects how we work, who we hire, where we find people we hire. Like I've told you, I never, I never applied traditionally for a job in this field. Um, I was out there. I was um, aggressive enough to get picked. However, there are so many talented people that we are we are not privy to because we're not looking in all those different places. So we make a point to look in those different places. Um, and give people a chance. Um, for our senior leadership, we found that people who are well-traveled are open-minded enough. So for the senior leadership, we, we need people on the team that understand they don't have any answers on because we have to go find and seek. Hmm. Um, also, our just some operational things like our hours. Before COVID, um, now everybody doesn't have hours, but we never had hours. We were never a nine-to-five shop. Hmm. And when, when people join us, especially young people, come up to intern and go, oh, we don't have hours. They're like, yeah, but well, that means every hour is the hour. So people are able to work and be creative when they're the most creative. We have people who 2 a.m. is their hour. That's their hour. 
as long as we meet deadlines, we don't we don't um, we don't police when people work. I really, it's, I've never I've never found that to be of any importance in in, in a workplace for what I do. Um, and then making sure that our, our processes and our um, tools for business are accessible. We don't want to have any reason why we cannot hire a person with a disability, um, which is also back to we don't have hours. And so even when we were in the office, and obviously I'm from working at a home like most a lot of other people, um, we you could come and go as you please. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was, um, and you didn't have to work out of the office at all if you didn't want to. So so but, work-wise, yeah. the the pandemic wasn't a huge shock to your organization? Not in our habit. Um, but in a way, it's, we, we, we miss seeing each other. We, mm-hmm. we, we, we had a lot of um, a lot of parties. We celebrated birthdays like no one else. So we miss seeing each other. Um, but But it didn't change too much. We were all set up to work virtually anyway because we already did yeah so yeah. let's talk about the other pandemic let's talk about what happened this summer right here in our own hometown uh the, the killing of george floyd and how did that um how did it impact you personally and how did you handle it professionally yeah that <laughs> For many years, we've been working on different initiatives around the disparity gaps in Minnesota. Um, just because of the nature of our work, we've been in those in those settings. And through our work, we've sounded the bell a number of times, different ways, right? That if we don't fix, I mean, we wrote a whole manifesto about about the disparities five years ago. And I think in the manifesto, because if we we have to fix this problem now. This is your agency and did this, or you did this yes, for a client? Yes. Okay. We did it. We well, we we were working with a client, and we wrote them a manifesto. So we just added it on. It's like we have this. This has to happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one, the needle never moved. Hmm. The needle never moved. Before the killing of George Floyd, as we were home with COVID, immediately we knew that the hardest communities hit will be the communities of color by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we set to work. We created a whole new service offering called Ripple Outreach to reach those who are typically underreached by communication efforts that could save their lives. Because the entities that do these outreach efforts, whether it's government or healthcare, they're using the same playbook, which is not inclusive. Um, they might adopt a tactic here or there, but it's not effective. But as we were doing that work, I tell you, I cried about once every day looking at the numbers. I mean, it was so moving for me that we still have this level of poverty that's concentrated in these communities in such an affluent state. Yeah. And then we had the killing of George Floyd. And all everything, you know came to a head. So how do you then, how do you process that as as a woman of color and as a as the head of a business? It, it seems like every business has grappled with, you know, what is our voice? How do we respond? You're a business that was very much in touch with that before this. How did you handle it professionally? Okay. Um I would say, well, my profession and personal are intertwined. Mm-hmm. It's so hard for me to separate those two. I was so angry. I was so angry. But I was even, I was also angered by all the commitment emails that I got. What do you mean by that? Commit, all the emails that came out, we are committed to racial equity. All companies started putting statements out there. Mm-hmm about racial equity and their commitment to diversity and inclusion. And I, I, so as I, as I saw this, I kept reading them for some concrete action steps. <laughs> and I read statement after statement after statement. I'm going, but there's no plan here. Hmm. There's a statement, a commitment, there's no plan. And that angered me even more. So you have to have a plan. You have to tell us what you're going to measure. How are you going to know just saying you're committed to diversity and inclusion is not enough. 
It's performative. So I went through a whole phase of real protest and anger. Um, and now it's, it's, it's at the stage where we're, we're here to help companies get to, the, to transformative change. But I'm, we're not here to help companies write a good statement. Hmm. And I'm very clear about that. If you really want transformative change, then call us. And it would take work. It would take sacrifice. It would take giving up a sense of power to others within the organization that have not had any. If you're ready for that, give us a call. But if it's a statement, then we're not the right people for that. So is the phone ringing? Um, the phone somewhat. Every, so we've been very busy. Yeah, there's a lot of activity. But um, as far as closing uh, um, some of the clients that we had a hard time um, um, closing before, that's a bit slower. But at least they're, they're communicating now. Um, I think people are also holding on to their purse strings a bit because of the recession mm-hmm. as well. Um, but a lot of, um, we're getting quite a bit more business from the government sector and some larger nonprofits. That might be where the money is now. <laughs> as, we're, as people don't know what's happening in this recession at the moment. But I think it's really but, important what you said as far as transformative versus performative and mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a sense, you know, there's a lot of talk, is this a moment? Is it a movement? Do you have a, a sense on that one way or the other? I have a fear that it is a moment mm-hmm. and not a movement um, because, you know, human beings like to be comfortable. And we're in Minnesota. We know what we know what we like. We don't like to be um, agitated, right? Where the Minnesota nice. So I, I, I get the sense that sometimes it's easy to check a box and move on. But people don't want to stay in an uncomfortable place for longer than they, they need. They feel they need to or that they can accommodate. That, to me, is what would make it a moment, not a movement. Um, that's why I say it's really about sacrifice. You've got to sacrifice that comfort. We've got to do this hard work over a long period of time. There is no quick fix to becoming inclusive. Zero. We made a commitment and we're still working on it. You never, ever attain this, this stage of through inclusion. It's impossible. So mm-hmm. you're always working on it. And you will have to make sacrifices all the time. Um, but I, I have a concern that it's a, you know, people, people at some point don't want to feel uncomfortable, reminded of things that are not pleasant, and they'll go back to the way things were. So, you know, and I'm sure there are a lot of people listening going, yeah, it is uncomfortable, but we really want this. We really want change. We really want something to to happen. What advice would you would you give to them, whether they're leaders of their own companies or or working within a large organization? Mm -hmm. Take the steps. So uh, what I tell my team, the first idea that comes to mind, think through the next one. Right. So if there was um, something you were about to do, put it through a filter, create your own filter, um, a list of questions was, you know, did this exclude anyone? Is this um, action about to take based solely on my own benefit or the benefit of the community at large or the benefit to someone else? Like come up with your own three filter questions. And that would that would help to start um, assessing you know, our own, our own biases and how we go move through the world. Um, a quick one is, who does this action affect? And, and keep asking that question. Drill down on it. Um, even when you are doing something that's a good, that looks like a good deed, because I talk to people and I'm like, oh, we're donating food, which is always great. Hmm. But have we asked the next question? Why is it that there are people in my community that cannot afford food? And don't stick with your first answer. Ask and keep going deeper and keep going deeper. And you might just get to the the source and the role that you play in that food scarcity right there. Right, right. So we have to just keep examining. And it's not easy, but we have to keep doing that. 
So, Rosemary, when you think about all of your experiences and all the places you've worked and, and now this this time that we're, we're in right now, when I have to imagine it's hard to be the boss and be the one who has to make all the <laughs> difficult decisions, are you, do, do you look at all of that and think, I'm so glad that I went out on a limb and, and started my own agency, even if it was because you got the push? I mean, you, you got the push into entrepreneurship. Oh, yeah. Are you glad or, I mean, is it fulfilling? Is it would you go back to an agency? How do you feel about running your own business today? Great question. Just yesterday, I was working on a project and I heard myself go, gosh, I love what I do. Hmm. So this is a project for an organization where the employees um, were just not happy with their brand because of how the other agency went about it. They basically went and created behind the curtain and came back and go, this is what you do. But our process of working with companies is an inclusive one. So we built this internal engagement plan that is interactive and fun um, to bring everyone along in the process, to include them. And I just said, this is why we do what we do. To take this angst that the employees feel, this sense of, not being secure of knowing that their voice matters in the, in the brand development of their company and turning that around. So, yeah, I feel extremely fulfilled with how we go about our work. We have a saying um, at our company, the end does not justify the means. The means is just as important as the end result. Hmm. And we pay a lot of attention to that means, making sure people feel included, that they feel safe to put their ideas on the table, Um, And that they matter um, as we create that brand. So, yeah, I'm very happy. Um, I'm very pleased with the decision, actually, (laughs) at this point. Do do you feel um, do you feel more responsibility to to your business and your staff or to your community? You're a, you're a big thinker and your ideas go far beyond what you're doing at your you know relatively small agency. How do how do you? I mean, it's just sort of one of those things. You're just sort of a natural born leader. Oh, I don't know. I think I I just think I have the best team in the world. <laughs> to be honest, so they're all kind of on the same wavelength. We all believe an inclusive world is a better world. Um, so they, I tell them they give away the shop. So, yeah, they would, they would work for free for some things just because they want to see the impact of it. And I have to keep reeling it back in. Like, it's still a business, people. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, but I think everyone on the team, we, we, we see the transformation. And there are small wins, which we hope will... Um, accumulating to larger wins. We, our our um, vision is to be a role model for inclusion in the industry. That's that's our vision statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are trying to model what it is like to to do this and do it the right way, knowing that whatever we put out there has a huge impact on society. How do we think stereotypes are, are formed and reinforced? advertising. We have done so much over the years that we all need to start undoing it because we're the ones putting the communication out there. Um, We're the ones creating the associations through our choice of words and imagery. So we have, yeah, we want to be the role model. We want people to do what we do, knowing that it's not just about selling a product, it's community at large. Right. Well, that that's a fantastic goal and, and, and a lot of work to be done. And we definitely won't tell anyone that, that you'd work for free. We want you to get No, paid. no, we don't. Some <laughs> of my team members might, but not me. <laughs> we're, trying, we're trying to, I, say, I tell people we're trying to put milk in the cat's bowl. <laughs> right, so, right. Rosemary, <laughs> if, if, um, if we had told you back as, as a young woman in Nigeria that one day you were going to be running a company in Minnesota, of all places, what would you have thought? Oh, no way. First, I didn't know what Minnesota was, so I'll just go, what? <laughs> no way. I would. Um, I couldn't even imagine that pathway at all. Um, no, I, I didn't. I didn't dream of it. I didn't have the capacity to dream this big as a young person in Nigeria. 
Well, it, it seems like it was uh, meant to be in many ways that you end up here. Yes, <laughs> definitely. And you're having a big influence on, uh, thank you. on on your own agency, the work you're doing, and on the community. So thank you for all of that, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's a great one. Well, thank you for having me. So as we discussed with Rosemary, so many promises made this summer in particular. How do we move forward? How do we make sure that those promises towards diversity and inclusion become actions? Well, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Really excited to introduce you to Nikisha Lewis. She's the Associate Dean of Undergraduate and Accelerated Master's Programs, and she's the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Ambassador for the Opus College of Business. Thanks so much for joining us, Dean Lewis. Thank you. So happy to be here. So first, I want to ask you a, a quick question about advertising. It, it, I, I don't want to pick on that industry unfairly. They seem very aware of the, their own diversity problem. And I don't know if that's just because they're an industry of storytellers. Is the problem more pronounced in terms of a lack of diversity in advertising and marketing than it is in other industries? I would argue that the problem is spread across um, business industries altogether. I think I am, I would argue that the advertising industry is starting to have some good conversations about it, but conversations um, have been started honestly years ago. And so the question is now is how do we move forward in these industries that recognize that they have a problem in diversifying not only their talent pool, but how they do business. Exactly. So so that's where we're at now. A lot of big statements made this this summer. I think virtually every company of every size feels an obligation to say something, to have some sort of plan. Is now the moment when it turns into action? Do you have confidence that things are really going to change or move forward? It is my hope that that is definitely the case, but I would say some of that will lean heavily on whether or not those industries are committed to doing the work beyond the words, i.e. putting not only people in positions, but allowing those positions to have some honest responsibility as well as resources to support those initiatives. And so finding excellent ways to create pipelines, mentorship programs that work and make sense are also inclusive being an open uh, open to perhaps critiques about how well it's going, getting feedback, and then following up with actual steps on how they will make changes within their industry. I think this is an, a great time uh, for making change and holding people accountable for the change at which they're suggesting they're about to take. Right. And so my suggestion would be to anyone out there, it's beyond your plan, Right. What are some actionable things that we can hold our organization to? What are some metrics, right? So when we talk about business, business organization, understand metrics and moving the needle. How do we apply that same type of excitement and expectation around our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives? So going beyond just our numbers that we have more people here, how does our culture feel for the people that are now here? How are we ensuring that their, their voices are amplified so everybody is being heard? Um, at the table versus only certain others. Mm -hmm. And so I would argue that not only those that are currently working within these different industries speak up at the moment, but that consumers and outside groups and organizations begin to hold these industries accountable, um, even when we think about recruitment and retention. So as some of these more diverse, underrepresented groups are interviewing, ask those questions. How well are you doing regarding this area? What does that mean for me if I were to choose your organization? Versus the idea of it just being, we made some statements, we care a bit. Where's your money going? Where are the resources going? What type of programs do you have in place to support these initiatives? They can go from talk to actual action. Right. Well, let's let's hope we see more of that action. Thank you so much for your your insights and the encouragement. It's a it's an exciting time, and I I hope that now is the time we actually start to see some change. Absolutely. Nikisha Lewis, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about our little podcast, you can go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. If you're listening on Apple, feel free to rate and review us. It really helps the show. And thank you so much for listening to By All Means.
teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. Thank you.